Today's passage comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is so written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, welcome to our uh, New Year's party here at Cole. Uh, a uh, great place to gather and, uh, and, and join in uh, in celebrating uh, together. Let's uh, pray before we uh, get into God's word. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you have entered into this world, into our lives. We thank you for your very real presence, uh, for the blessings that you bring our way, for the, the way that you lead us into... Uh, your purpose and your plan and your will. Lord, I would ask that your spirit would guide us this morning, that we would become fully uh, immersed in your word and fully present with you as you guide each of us into what you want to say to us through it today. Jesus, we thank you for your love, for your, your care, for your grace and mercy, for your salvation that you bring into our lives. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. I want to greet you on this, uh, the seventh day of Christmas, or the eighth, depending on the tradition that you happen to operate out of. Um, I'm not going to ask people to, to raise your hands uh, as to whether you actually think that the 12 days of Christmas come before December 25th. Because that's the, the image that most of us in this Western world have, and that's what our media tends to play upon and talk to us about. But the reality of it is that the 12 days of Christmas are in fact a part of a liturgical church calendar tradition that we don't particularly follow here at Cole in, in, its, in its absolute sense, nor do most of us in, in America. Um, it starts with the season of Advent the four Sundays before Christmas. It then proceeds into the season we're in now, the season of Christmas, which is the 12 days after Christmas, which lead us up to the day of Epiphany on January 6th. The day of Epiphany is a celebration of either the coming of the Magi to visit the baby Jesus 
or Christ's baptism, depending again on what particular tradition you happen to follow. Note that the whole concept here is based on tradition, not necessarily upon God's word. <laughs> but there's some fun things that come out of it. Um, if, uh, if uh, in fact, we're on the seventh day of Christmas, if we follow the uh, song that we're all familiar with, the rhyme, then we would be giving you know, gifts of seven swans a swimming today. If we're, in fact, on the eighth day, then we're going to be giving eight maids a milking. Both are really hard gifts to wrap. <laughs> um, there, you know, there's also a suggestion that this, this tune from the Middle Ages uh, is symbolic, that it relates to ways to hide the true practices of Christian faith from people who were out to persecute those who held them. So the seven uh, swans of swimming are symbolic of the seven gifts of the Spirit, and the eight maids of milking are symbolic of the eight beatitudes, and so forth. Whatever those things may be, there, there's some fun traditions in it. Um, one of the ones that I discovered that I thought was very interesting and was kind of neat was the idea of marking in chalk the doorposts of people's houses on the day of Epiphany, on the 6th of January. And what's written up there is the year and then the letters CBM. The letters CBM either stand for Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior, the mythical three kings, or the Magi, or it stands for, and I like this even better, Christus Mansionem Benedictat. May Christ bless your house. And I think that's a very cool, cool tradition uh, to, to hold. Might try that one. It's, uh, it would be a good thing to do with some of your friends or neighbors to go about and bless each other's houses on the day of Epiphany. As I said, they're, they're, the idea that there are three wise men is in fact, or three kings or three magi, whatever we want to call them, is in fact a part of the tradition of the Middle Ages. We really don't know from the text how many there were. There's nothing that tells us. The three is inferred by basis of the fact that they bring three gifts. The fact that they have names is completely absent from the text. It doesn't matter. So the names that have been given to them are part of that Middle Ages tradition again. Um, the fact that their skulls and, and skeletons were found and are in fact enshrined in France, don't waste your money. It's, it's almost certainly not them. Um, so those are, those are just some of the fun aspects of the idea of the 12 days of Christmas. Um, as we look at this text today, we're reading out of Matthew. Matthew singularly records these events. The coming of the Magi are not recorded in the other Gospels. Matthew was a Jew. But Matthew was an interesting Jew among, among his, the people of his country. Matthew would have ne neither been acceptable among the Jewish people or among the Romans. He was a tax gatherer. Nobody respected or even trusted a tax gatherer. This was a low occupation, and, uh, and that's what Matthew had chosen to do. Um, and he was, therefore, completely outside of, because of his own choices, because of his decision to follow this particular profession, outside of the good graces of everybody in his culture, except maybe those uh, who benefited from his financial well-being. Um, but then Jesus came to Matthew, and he called him and asked him to leave his, his profession and join him and follow him. And Matthew did. 
And so when this happens, something very powerfully compelling occurred with Matthew. In this invitation, there was acceptance, there was reconciliation, there was hope and a future. He was given answers to promises made by God long ago and answers to the longings of the hearts of people throughout history. Matthew had experienced healing from the fatal illness of sin. Now he tells the story of the king, the sovereign presence of God come to lead all people, Jew and Gentile alike, to that same healing. This is a, this is a powerful story that Matthew wants to tell. Let me talk for a minute about the, the places and the people that we're going to look at today. First of all, the places, the east, the magi or wise men came from the east, probably Babylon, Persia. Uh, in, the, in the days uh, of this story, the Parthian Empire. These, uh, these were men who were well-known coming from that part of the world. They come to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, the capital of the seat of the Roman presence in this part of the world in Palestine, and the seat of religious practice, the center of religious practice in the Hebrew nations. They then proceed on to Bethlehem, moving from the great city to the tiny community, the little village uh, that is about six or so miles south from Jerusalem, nestled between two ridges, a small community, mostly agrarian, uh, but a place where, where God's hand had touched over history. Uh, this is the place uh, where Jacob had buried Rachel. This is the place where Ruth met Boaz. This is the place where David was raised up and where he tended sheep as a shepherd, much like the shepherds who God called to the manger to visit the baby Jesus upon his birth. This is a small community that had great importance in God's plan for the restoration of mankind. So let's look at the people for a moment. Herod, the king of the Jews, by proclamation of the Roman Senate, Herod the Great. His father was Antipater, uh, the governor of Judea. He was in his position because of his father's power and prominence with the Romans and because of his own political and military skill. He had been appointed by Caesar Augustus and then confirmed by the Roman Senate into the position of king of the Jews. The, the, the ruler over the province. He himself was only half Jewish. He was half Edomite, uh, the descendants of Esau from the south, and he was half uh, Jewish, Hasmonean, from his mother's side. And he was therefore not a legitimate ruler for the Jewish people. He was not a true Jew. He had helped the Romans drive the Parthians out of Palestine and that's the point at which he becomes the true, is seated on the throne and becomes the king of Jews. He was a man with great skills. He was a builder, a creator of great uh, public works. He built cities, he built seaports, he built temples, both Hebrew and pagan. And he was a powerful person of influence throughout his region. He was also paranoid and cruel in the extreme. He had his brother-in-law, who was the high priest at his appointment, a man of about 19 years of age, 
drowned by his friends because he was afraid of the leanings that his brother-in-law held. And then Herod put on a great show of weeping and mourning in public and threw a lavish funeral for the man he had had murdered. Subsequently, he has his wife, Mariamne, executed because he is paranoid of what she is thinking or plotting. He has three of his sons put to death for the same reasons. Many others, and his final and ultimate uh, act of cruelty is when he is over 70 years of age in poor health and dying, he orders the arrest of numerous prominent citizens of Jerusalem and with an order of death so that upon his personal death, Herod's death, they would execute all of those prisoners because he was afraid nobody would weep for him in Jerusalem. So he wanted there to be great wailing and weeping and mourning in the city upon his death. Cruel and paranoid individual. Magi, these wise men from the east, the the sect of the Magi came into existence in about the 7th century B.C. These are people who were closely affiliated with the courts of Babylon, with the Parthian court. They were astrologers and astronomers. They studied the stars. They studied the heavens. They studied the signs. They were dream interpreters. They were both religious and political in their influence. These are the people who had attempted to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the Magi. These were the people who who Nebuchadnezzar called. So when Daniel was called and he successfully interprets the dream, Nebuchadnezzar pronounces Daniel Rob Mag, chief of the Magi. And his influence becomes powerful influence for Yahweh in that eastern kingdom in those days. These are men who still were of great importance in the world at the time of the telling of this story and were well known throughout it. They probably had a very real understanding of the, the, the story of the Hebrew peoples of the Old Testament. Uh, these men probably knew of Balaam's prophecy as uh, recorded in Numbers 24-7. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The, they were well-known and learned men. And so they travel to come to see the king. As the text tells us, they see a star that comes up in the heavens. And they, again, as star, star readers, as ones who read the heavens, as astronomers and astrologers, they look to this star and they follow its path. And they know that it is a sign from God. They have somehow received this image, this vision of God calling them. And they come to worship, it says, the, the king of the Jews. So where do they go first? They do the most logical thing that one could possibly do. They come to Jerusalem. The route that they would have followed would have been the northern trade route, the most direct, safest, and easiest way to go. It would have taken them about 40 days to get from, uh, from Parthia to Jerusalem. And there were probably a great many of them. The, even if there were only three magi themselves, they would have had a huge entourage. They would have traveled with servants, with uh, soldiers to protect them, with other attendants, and uh, they, they, would have, they would have been noticeable. Let's put it that way. When this crowd of these powerful and important men from the east come into Jerusalem, there is nobody who would have, would have been unaware of their presence. 
It says they went about the city seeking, asking. They, they don't just go to Herod immediately. They go about the city and they're inquiring as to where the king of the Jews might be born. And finally they come to Herod. And Herod calls upon his advisors. He calls upon the, the scribes and the Pharisees and he asks them to come and share where, the, where this king of the Jews might be born. Where is it prophesied? And they share the prophecy out of Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they share this prophecy that the, the, the king of the Jews, the Messiah, is to be born in Bethlehem. And the, the uh, Herod, in his marvelous uh, duplicity, his uh, deceitful nature, tells them, go, go there and worship him and then come back and tell me where he is so I too can go and worship the king. Now we, we know and everybody in this land would have been well aware that Herod is not a man who wanted to go and worship the, the Messiah. That is not his nature. He is not a righteous Jew. He is, again, paranoid, worried, concerned. It says he was troubled, that the news of the birth of the Messiah was troubling to him. Contemplate that for a minute. Contemplate the fact that this is the one who history has been pointing toward, that these Jewish people, the Hebrew people, have been waiting and waiting and waiting for this one who is going to come and bring them out of oppression, bring them out of slavery, bring them into greatness and the prominence that God has promised for them. This is the one that their texts, that the Old Testament uh, verses, and that their teaching, the teaching of the rabbis over the years, has said will come. Wait. Anticipate. Seek him out. Be prepared. And when the event occurs... The leader of the people, the quote, as ordained by the Roman Senate, king of the Jews, says, go, you go. He doesn't say, I'll go. He says, you go. The religious leaders of the country, the scribes and the Pharisees, do the same thing. They say, nothing. They say, nothing. They point to the prophecy and they do nothing. It suggests to me that they don't believe it in their hearts, that they're afraid of what it means, that they're troubled and disturbed because it's going to lead them into possibly losing everything that they hold dear, their, their political power, their social and cultural position, their income, their influence. And this frightens them much more than following God's will and seeking out the true king, the Messiah. Because he will turn over, he will upset the whole system that they operate in, and they are terrified of that thought. So the Magi, on the other hand, these Easterners, these foreigners from a far land, these, these pagans from far away, they turn and seek the true God. They follow God's call, his lead, 
And God provides them with another sign at this point, right? He brings the star back. Only this time, it's, it's some form of presence, not like any typical star that we've seen in the sky. I doubt that any of us have ever seen a star in the sky at night that leads us specifically to a point on the map. Say, Nampa. I've never had a star that led me specifically to a spot six miles away. It just doesn't work that way. From what I've seen, in fact, if they had been using celestial navigation and with the angles of the stars in the sky and all the theories about what it might have been in the terms of a real convergence of stars, say Saturn and Jupiter, uh, in some form of convergence, which did happen around these times in history, that they would have wound up in the middle of Africa because of the angles of the stars in the sky if they had used navigation to get there. So that's not what happens. God steps into their world and brings them a tangible sign, much like he did the Israeli people as they were wandering in the wilderness in the Exodus with, the, with his Shekinah glory. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it was. But he brought them something that led them specifically to the town of Bethlehem and not just specifically there because prophecy did that. But it leads them specifically to the house where Jesus is now living, where they are residing, and brings them to this place. And so they come, and they come to worship. The Magi come before Jesus, and they, they lay down on the ground before him. These are these mighty men. These are these, these great personages, these people of enormous prominence and power and influence in their world. They come before a Hebrew baby in a humble house, in a little village in the country, and they lay down before him in worship. They, they, they fall on their faces to, to bring honor and homage and glory to the king, to the one who God has ordained, the king, to the one who is the sovereign over the world, over all of the creation that they have worshipped. And they bring him gifts. They bring him these three gifts that the text tells us. They bring him gold. Valuable then, the most valuable metal known to man in those days as it is today. And they bring him this gold, which in our, under, try, in our attempts to put symbology onto these things would be a symbol of his royalty. And they bring him frankincense this most precious of all incense, used for temple worship. The, the, as it burns, the aroma from it, symbolic of God's spirit present in the room. Uh, obtained from the bark of trees, uh, a very highly valued commodity, and this is symbolic of Christ's deity. And they bring him myrrh, another form of incense. This from the bark of the acacia tree. And... This myrrh, less valuable than frankincense, but still very highly prized and valuable, sometimes mixed with wine and drunk as an anesthetic, often mixed with other spices and herbs and used as an ointment to prepare a body for burial. And this symbolic of Christ's humanity. They bring him these three gifts as an act of worship for him, but I think also as an act of service. God brought 
to their minds and to their hearts the, the desire to bring these valuable gifts in worship, but he, he, he does a very functional and practical work in the process because we know from the story, from the text, that Herod is going to issue an order, another one of his paranoid and cruel and despicable orders, and he's going to issue the order that all male children in the area of Bethlehem under the age of two would be put to death in his attempt to, dis- to eradicate the fear, the risk of the Messiah coming into his world and defeating his place in, the, in, in their culture and society. So given a dream from God, a vision from God, Jesus' family leaves and flees to Egypt. These are humble people. These are people with little means. These are, these are simple people. They don't have the financial wherewithal, nor do they come from a group of, from a family or from a community that could support them to do this sort of thing. How do they afford to travel to Egypt? How do they afford to live in the cash economy of Egypt while they're gone from, from Palestine? I would suspect, we're not told this, but I would suspect that the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh were the things that they used to pay their way into their exile in Egypt and into their return once it was safe. So here we have God again using these men from far away, these men who did not worship or know the God Yahweh, but still he reaches into their hearts and he gives them truth and they see it and they respond to it and they do something about it and they bring this, these, these valuable goods with them and give them as gifts in service to the king. It's, it's fascinating to me how God has worked in these, in these men's lives and brings them this story to us so that we can see it and understand it. And they came before the Christ child and they bow down before him and they worship him and they give him their gifts. And, and the person they're bowing down before... Is, is a mighty image, a mighty personage. Uh, Charles Wesley put it this way in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. Now Christ is very pleased to be with us. God is pleased to be with us. He chose to come and live with us. He chose to be part of our world. Now, I believe that this is not just a good story that we're given, uh, although it is. I don't think it's just a source for plays or an interesting side role, side note in the life of Jesus. You know, I believe that God reaches into our world and into our lives just as he reached into the lives of the Magi. I think that he calls us and he calls us to worship and he calls us to serve. And he calls us to serve out of a response to that worship. God is, is speaking to us, just as he spoke to these magi thousands of years ago. He speaks to us with a voice that is unmistakable. He brings a light into our world to guide us that is clear and visible. The world that the Magi lived in, the world that Jesus was born into, 
was a dark and a, a, an oppressive world. The forces of Roman rule, the, the heavy hand of Roman rule, was powerfully felt by the Hebrew people. Likewise, and maybe even more significantly, the oppression of their own king, this man who was not qualified by their standards to be on the throne, this man who did not worship the God that they, that had put them into existence, that had set them into existence, this man Herod was a horrible ruler, an oppressive ruler, and they feared him greatly. They lived in a world where they had nothing but anticipation. This was a world throughout its existence that was covered in the, the blanket of sin and that was being torn apart by its presence. And into that world came this light, this light that guides these magi, these men from the east, these Gentiles, these non-Jews, to the presence of their Savior, not just the Hebrew Savior. He guides them into it. And I think that is the same reality that God brings into our world. He brings his very presence. He brings his light. He brings his calling to us. And he says, respond. He wants us to seek him out. He wants us to watch. He wants us to listen. He wants us to be aware. He wants us to come and worship. I think that's one of the challenges that you know, I feel that uh, is, a bond, is incumbent upon myself and upon all who, who know Christ, is that we need to be willing to listen to what his voice says. We need to watch for the light. We need to be aware of the signs. He calls us to spend time with him, time with his word. Understanding, just as those prophets of old understood and said what he's calling us to do. He calls us to not be like the scribes and the Pharisees, who knew it well, right? They could articulate the word. They could say what the prophecy was, but their hearts were not prepared to respond to the prophecy. They were so caught up in their knowledge and so caught up in their position, and so caught up in defending their, their, their societal status, so caught up in the things of their world, that they completely missed the presence of the one who they were studying. They completely missed the object of it all. He doesn't want us to be like that. He wants us to be open to his presence and open to his leading through his word. He wants us to be willing to say, Lord God, I, I, I look for you in, the, in here. I listen to your voice. I hear you. Now, now lead me forward. He wants us to be prepared to worship. He wants us to come to him and to bow down before him, to lay down on the ground in an act that brings us to a position where we are humble, we are willing to humiliate ourselves before God. We are willing to admit that we just don't have it together. I don't know enough. I don't have enough. I don't have the strength or the intellect or the capability to understand you and your will well. But I am open. I am willing. I am ready to accept whatever you bring my way. I'm willing to do something. If you contemplate the position of the Magi in their culture, 
These are, these are men of prominence. These are the kingmakers of their world. These are the men who it was necessary for one to ascend to the throne of Parthia or Babylon before that. The Magi had to pronounce you fit for that role. They were the ones who set people onto the throne. They were the ones who crowned them king. They were their chief advisors. These men of great prominence set out on a journey taking wealth of their own kingdom with them to worship the king of the Jews. Contemplate the risk that that looks like in their culture. That's, that's extraordinary. They're doing something that, that steps them out of their role in their own culture and probably sets them apart forever. These men will never go back to where they were before. They do not have that within them anymore. They are now completely sold out to, to this worship of the God of the Hebrews, their neighboring country. And they do it. And they go. And they, and they worship this king. Now, I'm not sure what that journey might look like in each of our lives. I'm not sure what that star is leading each of us to. But I do know that it is a reality. I know that God is calling us to do something like that in our lives. I know that he is, is speaking to us. He is not silent. He does not hold back his will. He does not keep, keep himself veiled and secret from us. He reveals himself. He, comes in, he has come into our world and he is present. Um, I want to look at that whole passage out of Micah that was, that was excerpted here as the scribes and Pharisees told of the prophecy. In Micah 5, starting in verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock, and in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. <clears throat> this statement could not have been true of anybody other than Christ. This statement comes well after the life of David. So he would be the only Hebrew king who comes close to matching this picture. After that, the next one and the only one that suffices to fulfill this is Christ himself. Him with us, bringing us our peace, our restoration, our return to the state that we were supposed to be in from the beginning of creation. And he does. Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus is God and he is with us. He's with all of us. Not just Jews, not just Gentiles. These distinctions and all the other divisions that we have placed in our humanity are a product of divisive intrusion of sin into our lives, into our world, into our relationship with God. Jesus is the way and the means to reconnect, to reconstruct that which has been fractured. He is the cure for the brokenness of our world. 
Christ calls us to come and worship. His call is to all people, regardless of race, culture, life experience, or any other form of distinction or division. Christ wants to be in relationship with us. He wants to be in relationship with each and every one of us. He has come into our world to reclaim it for his kingdom. He desires our worship, and he sends us into this world to serve him. He brings us before him to bow down and worship. He brings us before him to go out of there, to to learn of him through that act of worship, to serve him through that act of worship. It starts with bowing down before the king in humble submission to him. But it, it continues as we open our hearts to be influenced by the light that he uses to guide us into his purpose and his will. He brings us from where we are to the place where he desires for us to go. He takes us on that journey like the Magi went on. He takes us down this road of life that is his road. That is his purpose and his plan for us. I would, I would pray and hope that as we go into this new year, that you would seek out God's light. You would, des- you would open yourself to his ye- leading and yield yourself to his will. <clears throat> I, would, I would offer you uh, the re- a restated version of the blessing from, that I was talking about earlier, and, and that is Christus Domatua Benedicat. May Christ bless your house in 2012. Let's pray together. Lord, I, I thank you for your love, the love that brought us into this world, uh, brought yourself into this world. Lord, Lord, a love that conquers the brokenness and the sinful aspects of this life, that penetrates the darkness with your light. Lord, I would pray that your spirit would guide each of us into the, the path that you want us to lead this year, the path that you want us to travel. I would pray that you would bring us into the fullness of your presence. Lord Jesus, I also want to thank you for the baptism that we're about to, to share and witness in today, the symbol of, uh, of you and uh, commitment to you, this symbol of humbling oneself before you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time together today in your presence. In your name we pray. Amen.